Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, do we have a lot of stuff for you here today. Necrophiliac birds. I'll save that for a while. Um, shocking, actually. Uh, America's reading habits. Yes, Americans do read. Thank God, at least that's still happening. But when you find out what, my God. Um, you know that woman, the, the Russian woman who's in jail because they say she's a spy and she was uh, targeting just about every Republican in Washington that she could find uh, sleeping with whoever she needed to sleep with. This is Maria Butina. You heard of her? Eh? Mm, uh. Oh, I don't think that's all it's got in it. I just don't. What do you think? That seemed very abortive. However, let us continue until it bothers us again. I came upon this. I don't know if any of you saw this. Put something behind it to make it. Um, here's a picture of Maria Butina, the Soviet spy, uh, at, uh, oh, this is from like four years ago. Look who she was uh, palsing along with uh, there. Can you see that? Can you see that? Eh? Is that our friend Rick Santorum? That's Ricky Santorum and the Russian spy. Make a lovely couple, I'd say. I just I don't know if you saw that, so I'm just showing you. Ay 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 Okay. Necrophilia? Nah, not yet. Uh, I, uh, I'm loathe, uh, but, but here we go, because uh, it does involve, you know, the current climate. I can't avoid it totally, guys. Uh, a lot of people, including me, on occasion take solace in thinking about demographics <laughs> and thinking the young people the young people are going to save us they're going to save the earth they're going to save the mess clean it up that we've given them the young people they grew up differently than us they aren't prejudice like so many of our generation. They're, they seem to be better. They seem to be wonderful human beings, these young people. And we all know these young people. And then there's the ones you don't know. Or maybe you do. But I want to argue that grasping at demographics <laughs> to make one feel better is... Uh, I don't know if it's a fool's errand or not because, look, uh, there's something that I that has always annoyed the hell out of me, and that's this uh, generational typecasting, where, oh, you're a baby boomer, you know, like that's okay, that's it. But it's as bad as astrology, and I'm sorry if any of you are really into astrology. Like because I was born at a certain moment in a certain time. Uh, my personality somehow got set or I'm inclined to be this or that or the other, I mean, is what I say to that. The fact that I am one of hundreds of millions of people born between whatever it is, what is it, 1946 to 1960-something, the boomers, uh, <laughs> does not mean we're all somehow alike. It doesn't even mean we grew up in the same environment. We grew up in the same time frame. 
So when people say these things, the greatest generation, oh, give me an effing break. They were the greatest generation because they happened to be alive when they were alive. And there were challenges. <laughs> there was a depression uh, being uh, endowed with the survival instinct that we all have. They survived it, most of them. Then there was a horrible war. They fought it, as all of us would have if we'd been part of the greatest generation. Do you understand what I'm saying? It was a different time in many ways, but that greatest generation also is the generation that totally tolerated Jim Crow. Unbelievable, uh, unbelievable segregation of peoples um, and prejudices and keeping women down and all that kind of shit. That's not the greatest generation, okay? Thank you very much. So I hate this stuff. I hate that kind of sloppy BS thinking. And it comes out of media. It's always their need to like codify, to like put things into little, little boxes and packages so that I guess the lame brains who uh, buy into their stuff can get their heads around it. Come on. People are people. They're just people. Now, environmental forces acting upon certain generations do create changes. There's no doubt about it. And if you gave uh, the greatest generation Twitter and video games and God knows what else, uh, th their trajectory would have been different, probably, in some ways. I don't know. I hate that stuff, okay? So I just wanted to say that this waiting for the next generation is um, is really, first of all, it's just it's stupid. It 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 it, it and it's irresponsible, and it uh, it allows uh, us or you or whoever's doing it uh, to not have responsibility <laughs> for the here and now. So I think I thought this up because somebody had written a piece I, that I read about the children that come to Trump's rallies, these hate-filled rallies, these, you know, blood-chilling events. And children are there. Children are there, and they're joining in these chants of lock her up, lock her up, and they're taking in all of the hate and fear in that room. And they're part of the future because people get formed by their parents in large part by their environment, by the values they grow up with. And we know then that a good 35% of uh, Americans are probably raising their children to be paranoid bigots. And one woman this is what sort of set me off and reminded me of all these thoughts I have. There was a letter to the New York Times today where a woman uh, quoted a song that I have always loved to <coughs> sing um, because it hits the nail on the head and it's from South Pacific. And I bet any of you who have listened to me for a long time know what it is. I'll try not to sing much. <coughs> me, 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 me. <clears throat> You've got to be taught to hate and fear. It's got to be... Oh, no, this is not... Well, that's not the error. Okay, I'll read what she wrote. A different thing. 
You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught before it's too late, before you are six or seven or eight. Eight. To hate all the people your relatives hate. You've got to be carefully taught. taught. You've got to be carefully taught. Pick your parents. And they're, to think that parents do that, I mean, they do. They teach their children to hate. Okay, just had to say. <coughs> um, <coughs> I've gotten away from watching any of the sort of late night newsy things that you know, are, are political, but also have laughs, because as you know, I've sort of ceased finding anything funny about our current political state. However, I did happen to catch uh, Real Time with Bill Maher on Friday. And uh, he had Stephen Schmidt on his panel. Steve Schmidt is, God bless him. <laughs> Steve Schmidt was uh, the, I thought he ran uh, John McCain's presidential bid. Um, so he has always been a Republican operative. He has famously, um, since Donald Trump, become increasingly less Republican to the point where not too long ago he disavowed his uh, membership in the Republican Party and uh, joined the Democratic Party and said that any patriotic American would, uh, as George Willis said and others, has to vote uh, straight Democrat not only in these midterms coming up, but for the next foreseeable future until we kick this current iteration of the Republican Party, uh, you know, to the curb and stomp on it. And I thought he was just brilliant. And I went to uh, the internet to see if I could get a readout of what he had said. And of course, there was some stuff there, but not the one thing that I really wanted to hear. And But I'll, I'll read you this. I mean, and this is just, just something he said off the top of his head. Uh, he was talking about how they always, uh, fake news, fake news, fake news, okay. And he's talking about Trump. We're seeing somebody go to mass rallies, constantly lie to incite fervor in a cult of personality base. We are seeing him make victimization honorable. They're all victims, right? We are seeing the allegation of conspiracy, the deep state hidden nefarious movements that only the leader can see. We see the scapegoating of minority populations, vulnerable populations, and lastly, the assertion that I need to exercise these powers that no president has ever claimed to have. This is all deliberate. This is an assault on objective truth. And once you get people to surrender their sovereignty, what is true is what the leader says is true. What is true is what the leader believes is true, even though what's true is staring you right in the face. 
when that happens, you are no longer living in a democratic republic. 35% of this country has already checked out. They have joined a cult. They are obedient. They are obedient to their leader. And uh, that, that's it. Also, um, he said this about the party he used to belong to, fervently belong to, because he was an operative. They are not defending this country. And they are unfaithful to their oaths of office and to the Constitution of the United States. I think there's reason for hope that there are a lot of people like that who aren't going to have, aren't going to be public like that, but that are feeling those same things, that were good Republicans that believed in what that party used to believe in and clearly does not anymore. And you know there's this a few elections, special elections going on today. Uh, the one that's getting all the media scrutiny not far from here in Ohio's 12th congressional district. And my God, that is, a, again, it's a solidly Republican district. But... There's a young Democratic challenger, not unlike Connor Lamb, and uh, polls show this neck and neck. This is why the president went in there, what, two nights ago or two nights ago, I believe. Uh, whether his presence helps or hurts, who knows, trying to get their voters out. But... I know that David Axelrod, uh, Barack Obama's uh, you know, strategic uh, camp campaign strategist, said uh, today on Twitter that if the Democrat, a guy named, I believe, Danny O'Connor, I wonder what ethnicity he stems from, uh, if Danny O'Connor wins this Republican district tonight, he said it will be an earthquake. It will definitely presage a red wave. My fear is, of course, that being us, that would be the Democrats, that if we do have this amazing November election, that we'll do what we always do when we have an amazing victory. We'll go drink, celebrate, and then the next morning we'll go back to whatever it was we were doing. We will not get back to working it. And that will mean we'll fail. This has got to be a long-term operation. I think I read a quote from Barack Obama in his interview with uh, Jean-Marie Laskus uh, yesterday in which he, he said, look, you know, I have hope, but I, he's, I, you know, I'm not a Pollyanna. I, my, my hopeful nature comes from the fact that I know that the country has been in terrible, terrible places before. And the only way it has persevered is we, the people, pick up and work. Work. Oh, by the way, Susan isn't here today. <laughs> you know, my brother offered, I talked to him last night. He's in Green Bay. He offered to come on. I said, I don't know, Bill. So I didn't invite him. I, sh I feel bad about that. We can't call him, can we? Oh, shit. I feel bad. I just got a really bad feeling. That wasn't nice of me, was it? He, he offered, and I said no. Um, 
real jerk. Um, oh, Milton sent me Billy Porter singing Carefully Taught. Oh, my, 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 my. And he sent me the transcript from the whole thing from real time. Bill Mark, you are incredible. Milton, how could I, what could I do without you? Jeez. Well, since he sent me the whole transcript, I'm going to try to find that toward the end that maybe what uh, Schmidt said, but I probably won't. I had mentioned that I was going to talk about what Americans read. This, this upset me. Now, I guess I should be glad that Americans read in, at all. And I'm not surprised particularly, but, and this makes me out to seem like, you know, the one-time English major that I, that I was. Um, you know, sort of like an elitist, I guess. But it, it's pretty un... Oh, yeah, wait a minute. There was a terrifying guest on the show. And I was thinking, we got to know about this woman. Her name is Nancy McLean. She is an academic, a history professor at Duke, who uh, wrote a book called Democracy in Change, in Chains. And it's about the radical rights plan for America. And she, in this interview, scared the bejeebers out of me. Because unlike us, these people have been doggedly working for decades and they're getting real close to actually changing the foundations of our country. They are close to holding a constitutional convention. Did you even know that? See, the Republicans, while the Democrats, you know, I don't know what, are too busy doing whatever Democrats do, the Republicans have been taking over state governments, right? They own state governments. And to hold a constitutional convention where you would actually, their intent is to get rid of some of the amendments and to throw in some different ones. In order for that to happen, you need to have you know, a big hunk of states willing. And they've already, I forget how they're closing in on the number of states that are willing to say, yeah, let's hold that baby. They, they have the plans. They've had the plans for this for decades. And they just keep working. Uh... Let me see if I can find her uh, things. Okay, here's what she said. That this country, more than any other uh, democracy in the world, has what she called veto points built into our structure. And, and veto points are like where you're trying to get something done and then bang, you hit something that stops it. And that is because the Founding Fathers wanted all these checks and balances. They wanted incremental change. They did not want anybody to be able to just... And it's very frustrating if you're trying to, you know, get something done. You have to be very dogged working the American system. And she says the American government has four veto points... Most democracies have maybe two, usually, or at most three. And they are like the Electoral College. That'd be a veto point that we would like gone. I mean, if there were a constitutional convention, I'd want the Electoral College gone like that. But the way it's all rigged now with all these little states having as much power as all the big states where most Americans live ain't going to happen. The fact that, um, okay, so you have these checks and balances. 
And she says, with Koch brother funding, what these doing, people are doing, like groups like the American Legislative Exchange Council, they have been lining up these authorizations for a constitutional convention, and they now have 28 states signing off on authorizing a constitutional convention. They need 34. They already have 28 out of 34 needed. That would be the first ever constitutional convention since the Constitution was created. They have ten amendments. They call them ten liberty amendments. They've got them all ready to go. And did you even know about this? She says you can Google them if you want to know what they got in mind for our Constitution. Google the Liberty Amendments and you'll find out. One is a balanced budget amendment. And of course that would mean the end of Social Security, Medicare, um, and all, <laughs> a lot of other things. Uh, their constitutional amendments include voter ID in the Constitution. And they want to revoke the 17th Amendment. Now the 17th Amendment is where we decided to let Americans elect their senators directly. Up until the 17th Amendment, senators were chosen by the state government. And that's what the Republicans want again. They don't want people deciding who's going to be in the Senate. And these guys on the right know it's a lot easier to capture a state government, because, and they've gotten very good at it. They got our state. They got the state next door. They got the state to our south. They got all the states to our south. Huh? They control 30 states. And so they are able to essentially put a chokehold on any progressive policy nationally. And this is a plan that they have had and they've been, again I use the word, doggedly working on it. Um, she quotes Charles Koch saying in 1987, 1987 Charles Koch is working this. And he says, since we are greatly outnumbered, he says to his fellow right-wing gazillionaires, the failure to use our superior technology will ensure failure. And so he, well, I'll, I'll just say what she said, meaning that they, they know they are a permanent minority. And their plan is to get the majority of the American people I guess, to just go to sleep, which I think they've done, or to hoodwink them. Because trying to get them to a no Social Security, no Medicare, no anti-discrimination legislation, no production of air and water, uh, uh, how are they going to get around that? Well, to get around that kind of thing, you've got to suppress the, their votes. So voter suppression voter fraud, gerrymandering, destroying labor unions, destroying Planned Parenthood, the sources of, of collect... So, and then she got interrupted. So, I got to tell you guys, you know, I know we think we're serious, but I don't know. Um... Uh, 
Well, I wish I could find that um, that great thing that that Steve uh, Schmidt said at the end, but I I, I shouldn't do that and, and try to talk at the same time. Um, okay. Here's this. I mean, every time I see what he said, I think, yeah, yeah, here's a few more things he said. You can go back to the hi to history, come all the way to the beginning. 25% of this country, oh, I like this. And here's Schmidt, and this we have to remember this. 25% of this country has always been whack jobs, okay? So 25%. Now, we're up to 35 now, though. That's not, that's not moving in the right direction. So 25% of this country is all we've always had. A quarter of us have been friggin' nuts. And he said, I mean, going back, uh, you know, who had this penchant for conspiracy. He had the Know Nothing movement that throws marble, uh, mar marble that the Pope donated for the Washington Monument into the Potomac. It has always been there. The point is, there are more of us than there are of them. And in an election that is secure, you hope that that would manifest itself. We should be in charge. But fear, says Schmidt, is a contagion in a democracy. Trump uses fear, and he is exhausting us, the opposition. When you are in a fight, you can win two ways. You can bring your opponent to submission, think Germany and Japan after World War II, or you can break their will to fight. Think of the United States in Vietnam. The degree to which Trump and his allies and the constancy of their craziness, well, it's breaking people's wills. I can see it. They become exhausted by it. I think there's some evidence in polling now to see that that's happening. So 95 days still from an election, which I would argue is the most important midterm election in the history of the United States of America. Everybody has a job to do. Make sure your friends check to make sure they are, in fact, still registered. Make sure that there is a check on this lawless administration because we are down the road 10 miles already into Trumpistan. And we're looking at the United States of America in the rear view mirror. Yeah, you gotta do more than you've ever done before. Every one of us, every one of us. Caller, go ahead, please. Hi there. Hi. Hey, uh, I question people like Steve Schmidt, some of these turncoat Republicans. I wonder, they have a plan, and I don't buy into all the shit that they're spilling now. Because if you listen to the stuff they said in the past, how in the hell they changed so damn rapid, it's unbelievable. So I don't even trust them bastards. I really don't. He's going to run for something, maybe as a Democrat now, who knows. But those people get on my nerves anyway. But what I wanted to say is, what is the, these damn, once this economy goes south, and all this shit happens when people are, oh, they're cutting things and that. What are these Trump supporters going to do then? Are they going to still stand up for this guy, or are they going to say, no, he's no damn good? I mean, I, I predict probably a recession, and if he's in there for eight years, guaranteed. But I just wonder when the, where do they draw the line in the sand? I mean, are they just that goddamn dumb? They're just going to go go with the ship or jump over the cliff with them. Well, I don't know. That's that will happen on an individual level. Some people are they're 
they've literally been brainwashed. They're part of this cult now. Yeah, it's uh, a cult. Yeah, they, it is. It is. So um, the ones who aren't in the cult uh, have a shot. I disagree with you about people like Steve Schmidt. You can't – why would do you not believe – I mean that there are honorable people on both sides, at least there used to be, of the political spectrum, and that he was one of the honorable Republicans, and he is so appalled at what is happening that he, he couldn't allow himself – to be associated with any anymore. And there are a lot of people like that, and I tip my hat to them. It is courageous to do such a thing because they will be vilified by their former compatriots and they will be looked at with suspicion by folks like you. So they end up being sort of, you know, like, I mean, they're, they're just out there. He looks... If you look at him now, he just looks like one of the most unhappy human beings in the world. This is a guy who cannot believe that everything he believed in, worked for, has been destroyed in front of his eyes. Now, he does have to take some, some of the blame is on him in that he was part of a Republican Party that trafficked in the kind of stuff that Trump has just taken and weaponized, you know. They trafficked in uh, fear and, uh, and uh, you know, scapegoat, scapegoating people and minorities. And, uh, well, it, it's come home you to know, roost. And then I hear people say, oh, I'd take George W. back if we had to have a Republican. I won't. I don't want any Republican in there. Don't forget what that guy did. I mean, it was just like each time it gets worse. And then you wonder the next time what the hell is it going to be. Hopefully there isn't, but we know it always works out that way. But you know what you were saying about us winning the midterms and doing real well? You know what concerns me is once we win that, and say we do get it, say we do win the presidency again, the Democrats, because I, I don't even know, concern myself with Democrats. But I've got to vote for the better of the two. And then we go back to that same status quo that people got weren't excited about because they didn't do what they said when they were out there. They don't change nothing. It's just the same old, same old, and then they get bored again, and then people sit at home and say, oh, hell with it. That's what I'm concerned about. That's why whoever gets in there has to really concentrate on workers' rights. All this stuff is so important immigration, whatever it is, uh, civil rights. What, well, it's not going to happen unless we get, a, I mean, they're already, we have lost the Supreme Court for the rest of our lives. Yeah, oh yeah. Okay, that's one branch with a huge ability to uh, check progress. Um, so if we take the House back and the Senate back and the White House back, that would all be good but you still got that court that even in just 18 months, these, uh, these radical neo-fascists have managed, corporatists, I guess, would be more. They've just taken, taken it. So uh, whatever. I mean, just I think you got to keep your head in the present moment. Don't think about what. Right, just right. keep your head in the present and really, really work at getting people to the polls who are going to vote for our people. Okay? And then you take uh, Obama. Now, he's coming out of saying about the midterms and, you know. But when he was in office, he did not campaign out there like he should have. He should have been out there more. It, he wasn't campaigning for all these, like, Trump, he sucks, we can't stand him. But he's out there campaigning. Obama did not do that like he is. And I think that's part of the reason we lost some of those races. All right. You have well, to push for it. It's just like he won the presidency, and it was the rest of it was just up to the party to do, take care of Yeah, Oba uh, Obama was not, you know, he was not all that political is what it was. He wasn't into no, party politics. And in that regard, the Democratic Party really uh, weakened um, under Obama, and I will agree with that. Hey, got to run. Thank you. Okay.
Bye. All right, thank you. Bye bye. Uh, I better get these necrophiliac birds in before I time runs out on us here. Uh, talking about crows and crows, I mean anybody who knows me knows I just think they're the most amazing things in the universe. They're some of the brightest animals on earth. Crows, the crows in your neighborhood, they know you. They know everyone in your family. They know who comes to visit. Uh, they got opinions, too. Uh, crows are amazing, but and they're studied often. But s uh, somebody who studied crows found something out that was so unsettling to her, and they they still don't know what to make of it. And here the the piece starts wonderfully. The setting was romantic, sunny spring day. A cherry tree blossoming a vivid pink. One party, the suitor, was dark, fetching, and amorous. The other party lay there, like a corpse. It was, in fact, a corpse. So began the first documented human observation of a crow copulating with a deceased member of its own species. Uh, I just want to say it's gravely disappointing. Apparently doesn't happen much, and they think the crow is just overwhelmed by hormones and adrenaline because when a crow sees another dead crow, their adrenaline go starts going. And they're, um, if they see a dead crow, they f figure there might be a mortal threat around, you know, a hawk, uh, a human, uh, whatever. And so if there's a dead crow lying there, uh, other crows swarm in, in large numbers. Uh, some go down to where the dead crow is. Um, and there's a lot of noise. And uh, they say it's almost like a funeral. It's also, though, a way of alerting everyone to potential danger. But I don't know. So anyway, they saw this crow copulating with a dead crow. And it's thrown crow scientists just all, they're just, they don't know what the hell's going on. Uh, they're speculating it may be a blend of potential responses a crow might have to its dead, you know, seeing the corpse as a sign of danger or as a potential mate. Some crows may be incapable of, of handling their own responses to all the stimuli, and so... Geez, I don't know whether to be scared or to, or to screw. Uh, so, you know, they just lose their minds. Anyway, we have a, I don't know that I can share it, but I didn't quite, a, a picture of a aroused male uh, over a dead crow. I don't know if it's an aroused male, but... I, Robert Mueller's birthday? Well, happy birthday, Robert Mueller. God bless you. Uh, okay, this thing about reading that I mentioned. Uh, a guy who was generally considered maybe one of the best 20th century novelists, American novelists, died recently, Philip Roth. And, um, you know, I mean, the obits were just, you know, giant of the American novel, preeminent, towering, blah, blah, blah. And so you'd think that, gosh, you know, Philip Roth, if you were to make a list of, like, the hundred most read American novelists, he'd be in there, wouldn't he? Well, no, he wouldn't. Because it turns out that thanks to public television, 
and something called the Great American Read. Uh, we now know America's 100 favorite works of fiction. And they're not ranked. It's just sort of like an alphabetical order. And this was polling done by PBS and others. Uh, the books had to be uh, published in English, although not necessarily originally written in English. They could be translations. And like a series like Harry Potter counted as one book. Now starting in uh, next month, PBS is going to have a series called The Great American Read series. And uh, I guess this ends in October with the announcement of America's favorite novel. And the person who wrote this piece, Adam Kirsch, um, says, well, one thing we know already, whatever turns out to be America's favorite novel, it ain't going to be Portnoy's Complaint. It ain't going to be American Pastoral, uh, two of Philip Roth's, I think, greatest books. Because Philip Roth has no books on the list. Um, you know who else isn't on the list at all of the 100 top books, according to Americans? Well, Nobel Prize winning authors like Sinclair Lewis, pff, he ain't there. William Faulkner, forget it. Saul Bellow, eh-eh. Get some women in there. Edith Wharton, no way. Flannery O'Connor, uh-uh. Joyce Carol Oates, no. Jonathan Franzen, no. So what do we love? So it's it's interesting. I think what this shows is most Americans don't read much. And when they did read, they had to, like in high school or in college. So when asked, what's your favorite, they often hearken back to the last book they read, the last novel they read. And yeah, it turns out to be, uh, I don't know, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, right? or um, A Separate Piece, or uh, The Grapes of Wrath, or uh, Tom Sawyer. It's something they read in school. So those books are all on it. Every once in a while, someone trying to show, well, I am very literate. My favorite book is Moby Dick. You know, odds are not true, but, uh, I mean, I did read it too. It's, it's a hell of a book, but favorite? I don't know. Heart of Darkness. Turns out Americans love science fiction. That as a genre is just so overrepresented. So on this list of 100 books where you won't see Philip Roth, you won't see William Faulkner, you won't see, you won't see any of these great authors, you will see Gone Girl. You will see Ready Player One. You will see Jurassic Park. You will see, God help us, the Da Vinci Code. Now, just let me say, these are not, this is, that's not great literature. So, and what, looking at what Americans think of as great books, you know what else is on the list? Fifty Shades of F and Grey. That is... I tried to start reading because everybody said, oh, this monkey is just... So I tried. It is so laughably badly written that I, you know, if you have an appreciation for good writing, you cannot read that. You can't read it seriously. John Updike isn't on, doesn't have a book on it. Raymond Carver doesn't have a book on it. Tom Wolfe, for God's sakes, doesn't have a book on it, and he wrote a real good yarn, good narrative. And what they say is Americans just want a story. They want a plot. They don't want writing getting in the way of what happens next. And so if someone is writing and nothing's happening, they think, what the hell is this? Uh, 
And so it shows that what Americans often want is a grand mythic narrative. So you have a lot of these, you know, um, uh, what's a grand mythic narrative? I don't know. What do you call them? The Game of Thrones, uh, stuff like that. So this piece ends, I, I, I ended up going into a total depression when I read it, but the, it ends with liter literary taste, like taste in food or music, can be educated. We learn to enjoy things more and to enjoy more things as we accumulate experience in reading. So I guess what they're saying is, I mean, what we're showing is people are not educated in reading. So they don't know. It, it's like any time you know more, like the first, I took one geology class. I always, this is my thing I always say. I used one, one geology class in college. And to this day, driving around this area, driving on a highway with, you know, warnings of falling rocks and all those striations of it, I am just fascinated by the historical record that I'm driving through. When before I took that geology course, it was just a bunch of stupid rocks. Now, with information in my head, it's fascinating. And the same can be said if you know about birds or flowers or how a machine works. You know, anytime you have knowledge, the pleasure, excuse me, why I'm sure there was a better way of doing it, the pleasure that you get from life is enhanced. There's no doubt about it. So I'm sorry to see that so many Americans are not getting the pleasure they could get from knowing good literature. Believe me, it doesn't not have to have a plot. I read novels left, right, and I, and I do also like plot. I love plot, but I love good writing. Did you see that the uh, CEO of PepsiCo is uh, stepping down? The reason that this is particularly noteworthy is she is one of 11 only, 11 women, at the head of one of uh, America's largest companies. So when she steps down, there'll be only 10. And in fact, when you would think the numbers would be going up, they are not. They're going down. This woman's name is uh, Indra Nooyi. She's born in India. Lower middle class family. Smart as a whip. Somehow that got acknowledged, and she got a scholarship to Yale. And then she was off and running. She's 62. That's all she is. She just thinks she wants to do something else in her life. But also, listen to this. She did say in an interview that she was stepping down in part because she wanted to spend more time with her mother. Try to imagine a male. I'm serious. Try to imagine a 62-year-old man at the top of one of the biggest companies in America saying, at the top of my game, I'm stepping down to spend more time with my 86-year-old mom. Can you? Can you imagine that?
She was known for her incredible work ethic, working as many 20 hours a day, seven days a week. She fended off a takeover attempt. Her uh, PepsiCo, the annual income of Texaco increased 81% during her tenure. She's really good at what she does. But she's a woman. And women live in a different reality. Women, and I'll tell just one more story that she told. On the day when she found out through a phone call from the chairman and chief executive at PepsiCo that she was going to be named the president of the corporation and that she would be put on the board of directors. This was incredible. So she actually did something. She, she left work <laughs> to run home to her family. And when she arrived home, she was met by her mother. And her mother said, Indra, we need some milk. I'm sorry, we go out, would you go out and get some milk? We don't have any milk for breakfast. And Indra turned around and went to the nearest store, got some milk, and came back to her mother. And she was angry. Indra was. She said she banged the milk on the counter and told her mother, you're looking at the next president and director of the board of PepsiCo, and all you want me to do is, Indra, get the milk. And as she told the story, her mother said, you might be the president of PepsiCo, you might be on the board of directors, but when you enter this house, you are a wife, you are the daughter, you're the daughter-in-law, you're the mother, you're all of that. So leave your damned crown in the garage. Oh. Right after she became the head of PepsiCo, she actually had a meeting with Steve Jobs. And she said that Jobs told her that it would be wise for her to have an occasional temper tantrum, scare the bejeebers out of the people under her. And she says, man, that's not my style. But she said over the years she got a little bit better at screaming every once in a while and pounding the table. <laughs> so there's a woman being taught by a man of you know, being aggressive and being fearsome. And I, I just put this all out there to talk about that women, I think, carry with them so many more expectations and responsibilities. And a woman like her is just stark raving amazing. And also let us note for the members of Donald Trump's cult that she is an immigrant and that she is brown-skinned. Okay. That is, uh, I think it, yes, indeedy it is. That's what the clock is saying. So thank you all very much. Um, I'll be back tomorrow. And uh, remember, I got um, Thursday, uh, I'll be leaving to go to Green Bay, my homestead, for my mom's, uh, my mom's 96th 
birthday. So uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.